Well, good morning. I have to admit it's a little surreal to be here because um, I know how much you've missed me. For those of you who don't know me, uh, don't worry, this will be over in an hour. And for those of you who do, I understand that uh, therapy helps. <laughs> and I just want to get something uh, finished here before we do anything else. I want to take a selfie. <laughs> oh, sorry, wrong way around. There we go. Proof that I'm actually here. So good. Well, it is my great pleasure to be here. Um, my name is Ron, and uh, I had the privilege of being the lead pastor in this place for uh, eight years. Uh, that uh, ministry here concluded about uh, two years ago. But St- Central is still our home church for sharing myself, and I am uh, delighted that Pastor Matt is my pastor, and uh, I love being part of what happens here. We don't get to be here nearly as much as we'd like to, um, but that's just the reality of my work. And I have the privilege of leading leaders and uh, helping churches stay on mission. That's my my primary role now, and that's full-time. That's a lot of work um, among the churches to do that. Uh, Pastor Matt gave me a topic this morning that I uh, have always wanted to share with you, but uh, was always hesitant to share, but he gave me great freedom, and the topic he asked me to share with you this morning was the 10 things that I always wanted to say, but couldn't because I was afraid you'd fire me. <laughs> I actually came up with 27. Let's <laughs> say to you this morning. Yeah. Anyways. Point number one, don't be so cheap. <laughs> no, that's not actually what I'm talking about this morning. I have the privilege of, of sharing from the Word with you this morning. Who wants to hear from me? But we do want to hear from the Lord. And the passage that I have this morning, I was complaining to, uh, to Pastor Matt this week. It's like, really? You want me to preach that in one Sunday? Uh, this passage could easily be broken into three sermons. Like, easily be broken into three sermons. And I have 40 minutes to try and get it all in. So by 3.30, we should be done. And um, it, it, it begs a question, the passage we're looking at, it begs the question, who do you think you are, is the question that comes out of it. And the question is asked in the context of Jesus having, I'm not allowed to move, sorry. The question is asked in the context of Jesus asking, or Jesus healing a man who'd been cra- uh, crippled for 38 years. He heals him at the Pool of Bethesda. With a word, he heals them. And in that context, the Jews who are there, who are offended because he healed on the Sabbath, are now doubly offended because Jesus declares that God is his Father. And so in essence, they ask this question of him, who do you think you are? That's a great question. It is the question upon which eternity itself hinges. Who do you think Jesus is? There's all manner of opinion about how how people perceive him or what they think about him. What I love this morning is we're going to let Jesus speak for himself. Because in the context of the Jews saying, he actually thinks he's God, Jesus responds and says, "Uh, yeah, hello, I am. And so let's just spend some time in that this morning. I want to start by sharing with you a quote from C.S. Lewis. It comes out of mere Christianity. Uh, Because really the question is, who is Jesus? Is he just a moral teacher? Is he a prophet? Is he someone who claims to be God in human form? Who is he? This is what C.S. Lewis says that I think is really helpful to frame the the, the discussion this morning. C.S. Lewis says, I'm trying to prevent here anyone from saying the really foolish things that people often say about Jesus. Here's what they say. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool and you can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being equal to a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to leave that open to us. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. 
And consequently, Lewis says, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Now you may agree or disagree with that that perspective, that, that statement by Lewis, but here's the reality of what Jesus wants us to understand this morning. That he himself declares that he is God in human form. That he has all the, 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 the actions of God, all the affection of God, all the attributes of God, and that he, he also carries the prerogative of God to bring life, to judge, and to resurrect people from the dead. It's helpful, I think, at this point, just to remember why this gospel was written to begin with. In John 20:31, uh, Paul, ah, Paul, John, the gospel writer, says this. These things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. See, John's point of writing this gospel altogether is so that we would actually answer the question, who is Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? And His hope, His goal, His desire, His longing, His drive is that we would come to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that if you believe in Him, you would have life in His name. If you read the Gospel of John from the very beginning, you discover at the very start this marvelous prologue that helps us understand who Jesus is in this cosmological sense, who He was before He was incarnate, His pre-incarnate state. But from the very beginning of the prologue, right through up to chapter, the end of chapter 4, into the chapter we're now in, you, you have this marvelous uh, telling of the, the story of Jesus revealing himself to a growing group of individuals. He starts with John the Baptist, and John reveals him as, as the Son of God. He reveals himself to his disciples. He reveals himself in Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple. He moves out from Jer- Jerusalem to Judea. And he does miracles in Judea. Then he moves on to Samaria, where he meets the woman at the well. Then he moves on to Galilee, where he heals people, and he starts to display his power and his majesty at God. And now he's back in Jerusalem, and you find ourselves in the passage we're going to look at this morning. And the context is that Jesus has been in Jerusalem. He was at the pool of Bethsaida. He saw a man who had been crippled for 38 years. He asked the man, do you want to be healed? And, and Jesus tells him to, to pick up his mat and walk. He heals him with a word. And it's in that context where Jesus heals on the Sabbath that the Jews ask the question, who do you think you are? Let me ask you the question. Who do you think Jesus is? I agree. Now the question is, do we live that way? Verse 18 reads this way, and we're going to read the whole passage in a second here, but the reason the Jews wanted to kill him all the more was because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his Father, making himself equal. The word equal is in stature, nature, and content, the same as God. And so today's passage is written in this context of asking the question, who do you think Jesus is? And and what Jesus does, he offers one of the highest Christologies you'll find in the Gospel of John. As a matter of fact, my, commi- my, my, um, my perspective is that this is the pivotal point in the Gospel of John. It is here, more than any other place, that Jesus lays out who he believes he is, who he not only believes he is, who he actually is. And so we've got a lot of work to do, so let's get to it and have some fun. Now, fair warning. First service, apparently I talked at 400 words a minute. Is that right, Pastor Gary? So... I'm going to try and slow it down to 380. But let's read the passage together. John 5, starting at verse 19 through the 30. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, Central has Bibles for you. You just need to visit the Welcome Center, right? It's good. Don't leave here without a Bible. You need the Word. And phone apps are great. Really hard to write on the screens. Bibles, you can scribble. Anyways, I'm moving now for camera people, just so you know. Here we go. Verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what, the fa- what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. 
For as the Father raises the dead and gives life, gives life to them, so the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but passes or has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who has sent me. Oh, would you pray with me? Lord, your word is rich. (laughs) And there's so much here. And... And I'm thick. So I pray, God, that I wouldn't get in the way. And that our ears would be attentive to what you have to say because your words bring life. Jesus, would you move and be honored this morning? May we lift you high. Holy Spirit, would you unclog our ears so we might hear your word with power and find in them faith to believe and to find life in the Son. We give ourselves to your word now, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to share with you just uh, the quick outline. Apparently that's our tradition here. Um, So here's the outline for where we're going to go this morning. That Jesus, first of all, in the context of the question, who do you think you are, answers the question this way. He proclaims equality with God. And he proclaims equality in three primary ways. In action, in affection, and in attributes. There's three attributes as well. That Jesus also pronounces his divine prerogative. As someone who is equal with God, he has divine prerogative. And these are the the three divine prerogatives that he claims or lets us know about. That he's the author of eternal life. That he has authority to judge. And that he is the agent of uh, resurrection. So let's fire up and let's go to this first part here. What does Jesus proclaim in the context of the question being asked, Who do you think I am? And we find it in, in the start of verse 19 where Jesus says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Now I want to remind you again. The Jews have come to Jesus and says, Who do you think you are? God or something? And in this context, Jesus responds with this emphatic statement. Truly, truly, I say to you. It's the divine amen, amen. Jesus wants his hearers, he wants us to take this word seriously and wrestle with it because in this word hangs the very essence of eternal life. You could translate the truly, truly this way. You must hear and you must accept what I have to say. There is nothing truer than what I'm going to tell you now. Do not miss this. Miss everything else, but do not miss this. The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees His Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likely. likewise. What he, Jesus is saying here is, I am completely unified with God the Father in action. Everything Jesus does finds its impetus, its origin, in the actions of the Father. And I want you to note something. It's very fascinating the way Jesus frames it here. The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees His Father doing. Jesus says, is not saying, I do not act independent of the Father. Jesus is saying, I cannot act independent of the Father. It's a colossal statement for Him to make. 
The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. See, in stating this, Jesus declares his constant resemblance to God in action and attitude. His sameness, his resemblance in purpose and in will. He does not merely mirror the father. He doesn't you know, parrot the father. He acts as the father acts. One in nature, one in purpose, and one in action. See, what Jesus wants the Jews to understand, he wants us to understand. You want to know who I am? I am one with the Father. I am eternally woven with the Father, interwoven. When one acts, the other acts. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Great word here, the word likewise. And I know you've all been wondering if I've actually studied the verb tenses. I have. I know. This here is a present continuous. In other words, the word likewise, the Son does likewise, present continuous, means I always have. From eternity past to this very moment to, to alternity future, if there is such a thing, for all time I have done what the Father has done. I've always, it's always been that way. Whatever the Father does, the Son does also. Whatever Jesus does finds its origin in the determination and the will of the Father. When one acts, the other acts. To see Jesus in action is to see the Father in action. But it's, they work in concert with each other. Let me say it again, just in case you missed it. Whatever the Father does, the Son does too. Later on in John 14, Jesus is talking to Philip, his disciple. And Philip asks the question, uh, Lord, would you show us the Father? And that would be enough for us. And Jesus says to Philip, my, you are thick. Oh, no, that's not, that's sorry. It's paraphrased, yeah. Jesus says to Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak with my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. What's Jesus saying? You, you think that I just happened to heal a guy? I didn't happen to heal a guy. The Father healed him and I was the agent of the healing. There's some profound implications here for us as believers, for us as people. See, the authority with which Jesus teaches and acts is nothing less than the authority of God Himself. And therefore, to be selective in our obedience to Jesus is to run the risk, was not run the risk, to actually to be selective in our obedience to God. Jesus' words, His teaching, and His, his actions have eternal substance and consequence. See, Jesus wants us to understand, and we dare not miss it. That's why he says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am one with the Father in mission. I am one with the Father in ministry. I am one with the Father in mind. I am one with the Father in action. To reject, amend, re select, reduce, redact, or censor the truth and teaching of Jesus. In other words, to put our own spin on it is to change the very Word of God. It's to set ourselves up above Jesus. And that is a very arrogant place to be. But it's also a very common place for us, especially in Western society. We are so prone, even as believers, to adopt an attitude of selective obedience to Jesus. Right? Don't we do that? We take what we like and we ignore or reject the rest. I want the salvation part. I like that. But the obedience part? Ah. He didn't really mean that. But Jesus wants us to understand, I don't just speak. <laughs> He's not like me. You know, just uses words for, for words' sake. When Jesus speaks, it's the very word of the Father. Jesus declares that he has equality with the Father in action, in word and in deed. And he says to us, you must hear and you must accept what I have to say. It is the only sure and certain truth that there is. There's this wonderful synergistic execution in the work of the Father and the Son. The mind of Jesus is the mind of God. The words of Jesus are the very words of God. The actions of Jesus are the actions of the Father. 
The striking truth about Jesus is that when we see him, we see the Father, and we dare not ignore what he has to say. Let me get to the second point. That Jesus not only proclaims he's equal with God in action, but he's equal with God in affection. Verse 20. For as the Father loves the Son, so for the Father loves the Son and shows him all he himself is doing, and greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. It's a wonderful phrase here. It's it's in the perfect present tense. And the, the phrase here is that the Father has always loved the Son. He does always love the Son. And He will always love the Son. It's not a love that started at any particular point in time. It is a love that flows from eternity and for eternity. And because the Father loves the Son and has always loved the Son and will always love the Son, He shows Him all that He is doing. It's this mutually reciprocal love grounded in and for eternity. Interesting phrase that's used here for love. Often in Scripture, matter of fact, often in John, when, he, when Jesus talks about love, especially love for the Father, he talks about the word agape love, sacrificial love. But in this passage, Jesus doesn't use that word for love. He uses the word philios. Now, we, we think philios is brotherly love, which it is, but it means so much more. Filios is to love someone based on close affiliation and long-term affection. So let me tell you about a filios relationship that I have. Recently, I traveled to Israel. And I went with the only person I would ever share a room with other than Sherry, Pastor Gary. <laughs> now, I have known Pastor Gary for 30-plus years. Um, And on this trip, I learned things about Pastor Gary that no one should ever know. (laughs) Just saying. And vice versa, that's right. I learned things about him that no one else should know. You're exactly right. Thank you, Larry. (laughs) Gary and I share a love that goes beyond all measure of circumstance. Because we've known each other very well, very intimately, for a very long period of time. Remember, there's nothing Gary could do that would ever break that bond of love that I have for him. He's my brother. See, what Jesus is saying here is that that's the kind of love and intimacy that he shares with the Father. It's an affection that flows from doing life together. That's actually a a dictionary definition. But literally, it's affection that flows from being in eternity together. It flows from existing eternally together. It's a love that is called out of one's heart in response to the pleasure that you take in another person. And actually what what John's doing here is reflecting back to John chapter 1 where he says that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. Well, the word with doesn't mean he sort of hung around. You know, he's kind of in the same locale. It's actually a very technical word. And the word is pros. It means at, towards, or facing. So this is Valentine's. Some of you are probably going to go on dates later on. Maybe you've already been on this morning. I don't know. But, you know, you get to that table and you're all mushy and the lights are low and you're leaning across the table. (laughs) And you're staring at the, oh, 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 right? And you can actually feel the person's breath, right? That's the word that's used. So intimate that they could actually, they're synergistic even in their breath. That's the kind of love that the Father has for the Son. A love based on intimacy. The love Jesus highlights flows from an eternity of mutuality, intimacy, fellowship, and transparency. What I discover as I read in this and read on in, in John, it's a love that's evidenced in two profound and impactful ways. The love of the Father is evidenced in complete and continuous disclosure, present, active. At all times, the Father discloses all things to the Son. Nothing is hidden from the Son. Full revelation, one mind, one purpose. The love of the Son for the Father is displayed in perfect obedience. Obedience that culminates on the cross. Jesus always obeys the Father, even to the point of death. Why? Because He knows the Father so intimately and trusts Him so completely that there's nothing hidden from Him. 
John 14, 31, Jesus says this way, and speaking, he's speaking in the context of his pending crucifixion. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. See, what Jesus wants us to understand here is that he has a reciprocal relationship, an equality with God and affection. It's love evidenced in full disclosure from the Father to the Son and full obedience from the Son to the Father. I love what um, William Barclay said about this. He says that this actually has uh, discipleship implications. It's meant to be understood as a discipleship model, Barclay would say. And here's what he says. Let me read it for you. Jesus never did what he wanted to do, but always did what God wanted him to do. It's because his will was so completely submitted to God's will that we can see the Father in Jesus. Jesus is to the Father as we are called to be to him, completely obedient. When we're obedient to Jesus, regardless of the cost, it is only then that others will see him in us. Isn't that profound? See, as Jesus inherently loves the Father and is loved by the Father and trusts the Father, even when it seems ridiculous, to the point of death, Jesus is obedient to the Father. Why? Because He plays a subservient role? No! Because He loves the Father and He is determined to display His love through obedience because He trusts the Father. And that should be the model for us in discipleship with Jesus. That we submit ourselves to Him who discloses to us the will of the Father. And we're called to live lives of discipleship that model that same measure of obedience. And when we do, regardless of the cost, it's only then that people will see Jesus in us. So we're called to trust the will and working of God so completely that we give ourselves to embrace lives of selfless obedience. Obedience rooted in the eternal love of God expressed towards us in Jesus. Now, oh, what time do I have to go to? No, don't give me whatever, because I'll be here for whatever. 11.50. Thank you, Pastor Matt. And that's Hawaii time, right? Okay. Whew. Okay, okay, okay. So, here's what Jesus says. The Jews are saying, who do you think you are? Right? And they're all concerned because Jesus has healed a man on the Sabbath and he's claimed that God's his father. And Jesus says in that context, they say, well, who do you actually think you are? You claiming to be God? And Jesus says, if you think healing a guy is something special, you ain't seen nothing yet. And here's what he goes on to say in verses 20, second half of verse 23, verse 22. Let me read it for you. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For the Father raises the dead and gives life to them. So also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus says, look, you know something? What I've told you already is amazing, but here's something even more amazing. I'm going to be doing greater things. I have greater attributes of who God is. And the first greater thing that Jesus wants us to understand is that he is the very giver of life. That he's, it's an authority that's reserved for God alone, and it's an authority that he actually has freedom to exercise. And it's an astonishing claim when you think about it. Jesus proclaims that he's the one who gives life. It's a characteristic only attributable to God. I'll give you some Old Testament references if you want to look it up later on, but I'll give you, read one for you and give you a couple others. Deuteronomy 32, 39. God speaking, God says this, See now that I myself am He, I'm God, and there is no God beside me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I heal, and no one can deliver out of my hand. There is no more emphatic declaration that helps us understand that it is in the purview of God alone to give life and to, to, to bring death. If you want the other ones, 1 Samuel 2, uh, read the whole thing, 2 Kings 5. See, what the Old Testament teaches is that part of the essential nature of God is that He's the one who gives and takes life. But here Jesus makes a staggering claim. 
It must have set the Jews back, and it's really intended to set us back as well. Because if you know anything about Jesus, he's just a guy who's the son of Mary and Joseph from a backwater place called Nazareth. Now, I've been to Nazareth. It's a pit. It really is quite ugly. I now get why people say, could anything good come from Nazareth? It's kind of like saying, does anything good come from... (laughs) Fill in the blank. You guys have way too long a memory. I just want to say that, okay? (laughs) We need sermons on forgiveness is what we need. For those of you who don't know what's going on, don't ask me. Talk to Pastor Matt. (laughs) See, Jesus makes this staggering claim. He's done some amazing things. He's healed a man. And Pete and the Jews have asked, who do you think you are? And this question really is exceedingly relevant today. Who is Jesus? And Jesus says, you want to know who I am? I'm the author of life. That's who I am. He declares his divinity emphatically, and he claims three attributes that are reserved for God alone, that he gives life, that he judges, and that he's worthy of honor. For the father, as a father raises the dead to life and gives them life, so also, even so, the Son gives life to whom he will. Who does Jesus say he is? He's the giver of life, both physical life and spiritual life. And it's meant to be understood in this double sense. He's the giver of physical life. He's the author of creation. John 1 tells us that. Acts 3 tells us that. But he's more than that. He's also the giver of eternal life. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in verse 24, 25. Jesus says he has the authority to exercise the prerogative of life. You have to ask, well, where does that come from? Look at verse 26 with me. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Interesting phrase here. As the Father has life in himself, he's granted the Son to have life in himself. The life that Jesus possesses finds its origin in eternity. The word granted means to give, but it's a timeless, aorist active. I know you've just been waiting to hear that too. In other words, it's not that God gave him life ten years ago and said, okay, now, you know, it's timeless. In other words, there was no starting point where the Father gave him life. He's always had life. It's an attribute that Jesus has always possessed. It's always been. Even as the Father has life in himself, which is an attribute of God, so too does Jesus. The idea of has given or granted speaks to Jesus' submission to the Father. It's not about his equality with the Father. It's not intended to speak of the degree of life which Jesus had, who had it first. It's intended to speak of the fact that Jesus has life. Jesus, like the Father, has life in himself. It's an attribute reserved for God alone. That's key for us to understand that Jesus has life in himself. He is eternal. He carries the power, the ability, and the authority to grant life to anyone he chooses. The point here is pretty simple. He gives life to whom he pleases. He gives physical life and he gives spiritual life. If you're breathing now, you need to thank Jesus for the gift of life he's given you. But if you're going to breathe for eternity... You need to thank Jesus for that too. We're told he's the purveyor of judgment. I want to go quickly here. The Father judges no one, but he's given all authority to judge to the Son. Now it's interesting because again, the Jews expected God the Father to judge. Deuteronomy 1.7 It says this, For judgment alone belongs to God. The Jews had this keen understanding that judgment was in the purview of the privilege of God. But you discover here another shocking declaration by Jesus, an association by Jesus. It's meant to shock us as well. The Father judges no one, but He has given all judgment to the Son. This is a radical statement. The Father doesn't judge. He's given authority to the Son. The word given means to relinquish, to hand over completely. And judgment is the ability to assign guilt or innocence. And Paul actually references this in Acts 17. For God has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. That is Jesus. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. See, God has set a day when he will judge the world by one man. And Jesus wants us to understand, he's the man. Jesus proclaims, he declares, he announces that he is the judge of all. 
All of humanity comes under the scrutiny of Jesus. He alone will judge. And no one escapes His judgment. There is no higher authority. There is no court of appeal. Jesus is the final judge, final authority, final word. Everything comes under His scrutiny. Now you may remember back a few chapters, John chapter 3, where in John 3.17 it says this, Jesus speaking, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Judge is the same word but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so you might be saying, okay, there's a contradiction in the Bible. Because here Jesus says he didn't come to condemn us, to to judge us. But here Jesus is saying he is the judge. What's going on? Well, it highlights the period of grace that God has extended to all of humanity, to us this morning. Jesus did not come to judge. Had he done so, we would have all stood condemned already. Here's the thing. I often have people say to me, If God's so loving, why does he send people to hell? He doesn't. We've sent ourselves there. He's provided the means of salvation in Jesus. So let's quit blaming God for our determination to be in rebellion against him. Sorry, I feel like I'm preaching. Sorry. See, if Jesus had come to judge, and by the way, he was given the authority, eternity passed again. Word word tense is so imperfect, perfect, active, always had authority. When he came to earth, Jesus could have judged. But that wasn't the mission the Father had given him. Jesus came to provide the means of salvation to save all who would believe. Judgment and salvation are parts of the same coin. Salvation comes to all who believe in Jesus. And judgment comes to all who reject Him. It's interesting that John 17, John 3.17 is followed by John 3.18, which says this, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And what's intended, to, to this, intended for us this morning is this profound wake-up call, this warning, this alarm, to recognize that Jesus' mission was to bring salvation, the free gift to all who would believe. Jesus came to save because we, all of humanity, stood, stand condemned without Him. Jesus came to offer salvation to all who would believe. And here He's authenticating His ability to offer that to us. But Jesus will come again as a final judge of our guilt or our innocence. Not guilt or innocence based on what we've done, the works we do, but guilt or innocence based on whether we accept what He has done for us. All authority to judge guilt or innocence is given to Jesus. And judgment is discerned in the light of how we respond to who He says He is. I love, again, what a commentator said. Jesus is the touchstone by which all men and women are tested. Reaction to Him is the test by which all men and women are divided. If a man or woman finds in Jesus the one person to be loved and followed, he finds the way to life. And if a man or woman finds in Jesus an enemy, he is condemned already. Isn't that good? It's also horrible. See, Jesus will be our judge one day. And the reason God gave him the authority to judge is so that we would give him the honor that is due his name. That's what it says in verse 23. That all, honor may, be, uh, that all may honor the Son just as in the same manner as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The Father gave Jesus the function of judging so that, in order that, to make sure that, we would ascribe equal honor, equal worth, equal measure, equal worship to the Son. And in exactly the same manner as we do to the Father. See, Jesus declares that He is like God, worthy of honor, worthy of worship. The Father has given Jesus the prerogative of judgment so that all will honor Him because He knows we're thick. This idea of of honoring Jesus was not something the Jews want to hear. It's also not something that many people want to hear. 
We live in a society that uh, continually asserts belief in God, but rejects Jesus. And you know, the worst of that is it happens even in the church. We love to engage in designer spirituality, to pick and choose aspects of belief that suit our fancy, selecting and rejecting what we deem to be right. And we give in that sense Jesus' selective honor, but Jesus will have nothing to do with it. He challenges us here. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. And that has profound implications, folks. For all faith apart from faith in Jesus cannot honor God. You can't believe in God without believing in Jesus. You can't reach God apart from Jesus. You can't honor God if you do not honor Jesus. And in this one phrase, it summarily closes the doors to every other religion and religious system. It shuts down all faith apart from Jesus. Sikhism, Islam, Mormonism, Buddhism, Baha'i, Unitarian, Taoist, Secretism, Mysticism, and even Christianity apart from Christ. See, this passage proclaims as loudly and clearly as possible that it's only through Jesus that God may be known, and it's only by honoring Jesus that you can truly honor the Father. What we need to recognize here is that all religion apart from faith in Jesus, is straight from the pit of hell. And it leads people there. How about you? But for me, it highlights the urgency of the Great Commission. It should cause us to redouble our efforts to proclaim Jesus, to pour ourselves into the Gospel. Because people without Jesus are lost and stand condemned. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is that way. John 14, Jesus makes that very statement. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Not I am a way, a truth, a life. I am the way, the truth, the life. That's it. See, Jesus proclaims to his followers the people who are listening to him and to us this morning, if you want to honor God, if you want to live for God, if you want to know God, you must do so through me. You're either all in or you're all out. There is no middle ground. And we have three minutes to go. And 26 pages. No, I don't have quite 26. I told you it's two sermons, Pastor Matt. Let me share with you just a brief overview of the last couple here. Listen, listen to these words again. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he passed from death to life. And truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of God, the Son of God, and those who hear will live. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying, I, I, I have the freedom to express divine prerogative. I have power over eternal life. He says it again in the truly, truly, the emphatic. Don't miss this. Eternity hinges on this. And he promises that people who hear him and have faith in his Father have passed from death to life. They have eternal life. The word here literally means to carefully perceive, to accept and apply. And it's a present active again. It's a continual determination of the hearer to listen to the words of Jesus and determine to apply them to their lives. It's not just listening, you know, the din of, of white noise. That's actually what I have here. That there's this danger of white noise that we listen to all the time. Different frequencies, different messages that the world and, and all kinds of people are, are, are vying for us to hear. And the danger is for us as believers, it becomes... Difficult to distinguish between the white noise of the world and the pure Word of Jesus if we don't give ourselves to the Word. You can even sit in church week after week, week in, week out, and miss the message of Jesus because you're so fixated on whether the worship was any good or what your seat feels like or is it warm enough. Or we, 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 There's all manner of distractions. 
The noise of society and the dissonance of life plays so loudly in our ears that we often fail to hear the message of Jesus. But Jesus would say to you this morning, if you've never heard me before, hear me now. If you believe my word, if you apply the word of the Father, if you believe in me and my word, you will have eternal life. This is called to hear and to heed the truth of God. See, belief is taking the truth of Jesus and applying it by faith. To listen to the word of Jesus and to believe the Father who sent him means that we take Jesus at his word. He's the incarnate Son of God, Savior of the world, Lord of all. It means we enter into a new relationship with him, submitting to him as Savior and Sovereign Lord, hearing and heeding, a life of discipleship and a determination to be transformed by him. It means we accept the way of Jesus offers, no matter how difficult, no matter what the sacrifice, certain that accepting is the way to eternal life. And by rejecting, we ultimately find ourselves led to death and judgment. And it means that we give ourselves as agents of God's grace to live out the gospel so others would hear. And I love the phrase here, he has eternal life. Not will have, not could have, not may have, not might have. But if you believe, if you hear the word of Jesus and you believe in the Father, you have eternal life. You will not come into judgment, but you have passed, past tense, from death to life. So let me ask the question. Do you have eternal life? Do you know Jesus? Have you heard his word? And by faith, have you applied it to your life? determined to become his disciple and to live out the truth that he's shared with us from the Father. If so, you've passed from death to life. But if you haven't heard the word, if you don't know who Jesus is or you're still confused about that, today's the day to make up your mind. But let me be crystal clear. If you reject Jesus in his word, you stand condemned already. And there will come a day when he will come and he will judge us all. Not based on what we do, not based on how much we give, not based on how morally we've lived, but based on how we respond to him. Verse 28 and 29 actually frame this in a way that's kind of scary. Do not marvel at this, Jesus says, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to resurrection life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. See, Jesus is talking about his future reality. This is the day of grace. This is the time of salvation, folks. Make your peace with God. But there will come a day when he will call all who have died and everyone will come out, believer and non-believer. All come out of the grave. All hear the same voice. All will come out, but not all will arrive at the same reception. Again, this verse highlights the urgency of the gospel. All face the judgment of Jesus. Only those who hear and heed his word pass from judgment, pass from death into life. And this should move us all the more urgently to pray for those who do not know Jesus. We should be on our knees to action, to take every opportunity to live out the truth of the gospel. So there would be no confusion about who Jesus is and who we know him to be because he's revealed himself to us. This should move us more urgently to proclaim Jesus, presenting the truth of who he is at every opportunity, regardless of how people respond. Jesus issues this solemn statement here, promise to those who hear and heed, the promise of a life. But the problem for those who do not know him and will not submit the problem of judgment. Those who have done good to resurrection life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And I want to be really clear, this is not about works righteousness. What Jesus is doing here is he's declaring that the lives we live form the test of the faith we profess. And the implications are simply this. Does the evidence of your life speak to the fullness of your faith in Jesus? In other words, does your life display the good work of God? 
If you read Ephesians 2, we're told it's by grace we're saved through faith, not by works, so no one can boast. But it goes on to say this, but we're created, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Encountering Jesus should transform how you live. And if it hasn't, you have to ask the question, have you really encountered Jesus? Anyways, verse 30 brings it full summary, and let me just close with the implications. And I discover two major implications here. The first is this, that Jesus leads us to a place where we must decide who he is. There's no question in his mind who he is. He proclaims equality with God in action, affection, and attributes. Jesus was either deluded or he was divine. There is no middle ground. And Jesus himself declares that he is a divine son of God, one with God in action, affection, attributes, and that he has the prerogative over eternal life and judgment and resurrection. So who's Jesus to you? He's made it pretty clear who he is, if you'll just listen. And that every one of us here falls into one of two groups. We've either crossed from death to life or we're dead in our sins and destined for judgment. We've either heard and heeded his voice and we've crossed from death to life and we're destined one day to rise and to, to meet our Savior. Or we've allowed the white noise of life to fill our ears and we're left unaffected by the words of Jesus and we're destined one day to rise and face our judge. Which are you? It's one or the other. This morning, we're either those who have heard the voice and we're determined to live as disciples, or we're like people running around with our fingers and our ears, blissfully ignorant of the pending doom. Which are you? Don't miss the opportunity, if you don't know Jesus, to make this the day of salvation for you. And if you do know Jesus... Do inventory. Check your life and see if it actually displays the wonder of, of good works for his glory. Have you applied the word? Do you live by faith? Would anyone know you're his follower? And if not, maybe it's time to do a little bit of work. I love why John wrote his gospel. These things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What a great gift God's given us through his son. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, for your mercy, that you love us. Thank you, Jesus, that you have left no doubt about who you are. that you are in very nature one with the Father. You're equal with Him in action and affection and in the attributes that are yours alone as God. And that you will come one day to exercise your divine prerogative. That even now you're, you're exercising your prerogative to give life to those who will hear your word and heed it, apply it to their lives. Lord, I would pray if there's someone here who doesn't know you, Holy Spirit, would you speak to their heart break through the white noise so that they might make a decision for you and pass from judgment, from death, to life this day. Lord, may you quicken our hearts so that we would become more compassionate to people who don't know you and live in such a way that we would, we would honor you through our lives and do good works for your glory. In your name we pray.